37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another wonderful episode of Pixelated Paranormal. I, of course, am Sean. I'm drinking a banana mule, and with me, as always, is Preston. Presto, how are you, dark sunglasses? What's up, all you cool ghosts and goblins, you crocodiles and crocodingos? Man, I feel like shit. Mm, Me too, if we're being honest. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I got a little little crud brewing up here, maybe. I took uh, Weed Man to uh, swim practice tonight and mm-hmm. got done, and I was like, fuck, I'm fucking hungry, and got done <laughs> and went to McDonald's, and they were like, double quarter pounder with cheese, cheddar, bacon, jalapenos. All right. Shit! Don't tell me more than once. So oh, let's order man. up one of those bad boys. And I ate that, and about like halfway home, I'm just like, I took a little nap. <laughs> woke mm-hmm. up at like nine oh five. Put some Crystal Head Skull vodka in a glass with some uh, Major Melon Mountain Dew. And I'm like, come on, Buttercup, let's go, chop chop. <laughs> Daddy's right? Daddy's not feeling life. There you go. That's all right. This one's going to be pretty quick. Um, I got a little stuff I got to do after the episode today as well. And it's kind of an interesting show because we had a little bit of an episode planned. We were still writing it. But I've seen a lot of podcasts I listened to here recently with the SAG after strike. Uh, a lot of podcasts are kind of standing in solidarity and not really releasing new content per se this week, but instead either putting out old episodes or re-releasing old episodes, that kind of stuff. But they're not putting out any original content. And so we thought we'd kind of stand, you know, unified as well with all these writers to a degree, but also we didn't want to not put out any kind of content. So we decided we'd do something a little different. Sorry, allergies are acting up and if you ask Lazarus, it's probably from uh, all the uh, wildfires, chemical spills, and burning Pfizer plants. Could be. Any hoozle, we want to continue on with the topic of Aleister Crowley, but we weren't quite sure how to do it. We still have a show planned about uh, the occult and mysticism with music with uh, Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and others and the impact of Aleister Crowley on them. But to kind of wrap things up, we kind of wanted to dive into the drug usage and all-out spiral, you know, downhill of Aleister Crowley. There's a lady who knows all that glitters is gold, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. Or not. Fine. <laughs> Fuck it. Uh, hey, I'm going to assume that was Led Zeppelin. I'm, I guess I'm no Robert Plant. All right. No, you're not but you're not much worse in my book. So that being said, it's important to note on this episode, what we've done is I found an article from a magazine. We're going to read the article in its entirety. We're not going to rewrite anything. We're not going to put it into our own words for the most part, but we're basically going to keep this original content about Aleister Crowley in its near entirety. I discovered a really interesting article in High Times Magazine, 
when I was Googling, trying to figure out the downward spiral of Aleister Crowley, his heroin addiction, drug usage, and blah, blah, blah. And the best article to pop up was High Times Magazine. So back on October 12th, 2020, on the 145th anniversary of the birth of the good old triple six beast himself, a.k.a. Aleister Crowley, High Times Magazine republished an earlier article written by David Dalton, which was originally published back on July in 1978. So in order to stand up and salute the writer's strike, we figure that instead of taking pieces from David Dalton's article and rewriting it, like I said earlier, we're just going to give him props, give him credit where credit's due, and just share the original article. So we may kind of touch on some stuff we've talked about. We'll probably fill in some more blanks that we skipped over. But more importantly, we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty on his drug usage. So Preston, if you would, get us started here with a quote. Come, I am ready. My soul radiant, my mind whirling, my limbs trembling. Is not your being equally electric, clamorous for mine? Come, the lamp also awaits, and the smooth purple tube of lacquer waits, its bowl a blossom, and the vase brimmed with poison, is ready as I, to my love's hand, to her slim, deadly hand. For lust's sake, let us lust, and for smoke's sake, let us smoke. <laughs> so you literally set the tone this episode uh, yeah. in more ways than one. All right. That was from Aleister Crowley from the magical record of the Beast Triple Six. Anyway, whenever the British press runs a, you know, low on copulating peers and murders that happen in their moors and mistreated animals they typically wheel out the marvel of infamy of Aleister Crowley. Back in his own day, he was called the wickedest man in the world, a criminal lunatic made mad by his own depravities. Nothing was so monstrous that it could not be ascribed to him. It was said, too, that he was a pimp, a dope fiend, a pederast, a black magician, a ghoul murderer, and even a 20th century cannibal who was rumored to have fattened up children for human sacrifice. The Great Beast, as he was affectionately called by his followers, of course, we know was born Edward Alexander Crowley back in 1875 in the English market town of Leamington, bearing on his body three really peculiar distinguishing marks similar to that of the Buddha. He was tongue-tied, he had four hairs over his heart curling from left to right, and he suffered from phimosis, a malformation of the foreskin. Fuck, why do I gotta read this part? Because <laughs> I didn't right. want to. <laughs> yeah, thanks, asshole. Alright, for all you non-science-speaking folks, phimosis is a condition where the foreskin of the penis cannot stretch to allow it to be pulled back past the glands, a.k.a. the head. This can also cause a cartoon-like balloon to occur under the foreskin during urination. <laughs> In teenagers and adults, it can also cause a lot of pain during an erection, but is otherwise not painful. Anyway, his father, Edward Get Right With God Crowley, was a wealthy beer baron and a hellfire preacher of the strict Plymouth sect. The year of the beast's birth marked both the founding of Madame Blavatsky's Theoscopical Society and the death of Eliphas Levi, considered by many to be the most powerful magician since the Middle Ages. 
In his own humble appraisal, Crowley felt that his appearance on Earth compensated for the discovery of America. Shortly after his father's death 12 years later, he had already chosen a demonic path, saying, I simply went over to Satan's side, and to this day, I can't recall why. By the age of 13, he'd become an inadvertent gambler and dedicated his life to what he liked to call the Three Wicked Kings, smoking, drinking, and fucking, which we all know. Anyway, in 1898, he became a member of the elite occult society of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and rapidly achieved the grade of Magus. With equal dexterity, he also scaled two extinct volcanoes. Uh, well, let's just butcher these. Ixacachutl and Popocatepetl. Nah, not too shabby. Not too bad. In an unbroken spirit. Then in 1902, he ascended from the formidable Himalayan peak of Chokori, and by the age of 29, he'd become a magician feared by his peers and accompanied, uh, sorry, an accomplished mountaineer and the author of over a dozen books and pamphlets, including flagrantly pornographic white stains, the infamous poems, considered by the authorities on erotica to be the single filthiest volume to appear in the English language. Apparently, they haven't read Bigfoot Smut. I think it's uh, Watsacottle. I think that sounds right. I'm just trying to go so. back to. I'm thinking uh, back to all my, uh, you know, ancient history or uh, or uh, <laughs> what was it? Uh, ancient astronauts uh, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. on his on the History Channel and uh, uh, Watsacottle um, sounds right. I don't know. <laughs> it's too late now. But. Hey, I can't. I can't argue with you that you're wrong. I'm just gonna have to go with it, buddy. Yeah. Well, anyway, like a lot of us know now, while in Egypt in the spring of 1904, something strange happened to Crowley, and it made all his achievements before and afterward seem insignificant by comparison. Crowley, of course, dressed in ceremonial robes, was performing a rite unheard since the time of Pharaohs, an invocation of Horus, the falcon-headed god of ancient Egypt. When he received a visitation from a demonic spirit carrying an imperative message for mankind the revelations of a demon i was amounted to no less than the end of the judeo-christian era and it inspired this doctrine to become the basis for an established religion which would have made crowley a prophet equal to buddha or muhammad or dare we say it jesus then in cairo from 12 noon until 1 p.m on the afternoons of April 8th, 9th, and 10th of the year of 1904, Crowley would receive a dictation from his holy guardian angel, Iwas, which was the book of the law, the spiritual text for his dawning new era that Crowley called the equinox of the gods and what a later generation would call the age of Aquarius. (laughs) Besides being a book of prophecy, it also foretold both world wars and Hitler, among other things. The book of law contained what was to become the heart of Crowley's philosophy, the law of Thelema. Do what thou wilt. You make him sound like he's like four inches tall. <laughs> That's right, everybody. We we know the famous saying, do what thou wilt. Although it's peppered with commands, curses, and exhortations, it contains more exclamation marks, it is said that any other work of similar length, Crowley didn't immediately know what had happened to him or what to do about it. Until his death in 1947 in Hastings, England, the better part of Crowley's literary career was spent interpreting the fine points of the Book of the Law 
for the generation that would populate the 2,000-year-long age to come. The Book of the Demon Iwas differs from all other books inspired by wisdom in that it insists upon what traditionally is thought of as sin as central to its core philosophy. I am the snake that giveth knowledge and delight and bright glory and stir the hearts of man with drunkenness. Are you changing your pitch? Yeah, god damn it. I like mm-hmm. god, I thought mm-hmm. that was like a f- <laughs> fuck. Whatever. Anyways, that's what the demon announced from a small cloud, and Crowley dutifully copied down the words with a fat swan fountain pen. To worship me, take wine and strange drugs. Oh, wait, hold on. Does <laughs> that sound better? Do I sound more demonic and godlike? You sound more demonic. You sound like the snake yeah. that giveth knowledge and delight. Yeah. To worship me, take wine and strange drugs. They shall not harm ye at all. It is a lie. This folly against self be strong, O man. Lust, enjoy all things of sense. Fear not thy any god shall deny thee for this. And Crowley obeyed these (laughs) commandments religiously, incorporating lusts and strange drugs as sacraments into the new system of worship. I'm going to say it is bizarre to look in the camera and see you with that voice. It's a tiny bit unnerving. Anyway, the demon merely sanctified Crowley's indulgence in all things of the senses. These were devotions to which he came early, expelled from boarding school at the age of 11 for corrupting another boy. Two years later, he was seducing the parlor maid of his mother's bed while she was at the chapel. As for strange drugs, by his 23rd birthday, Crowley had investigated every known drug and had the courage and complete waywardness to experiment with his formidable arsenal, both on himself and others. He was the guy, man. He was the fucking dummy man. He smoked opium and hashish. He sniffed cocaine, took liberal doses of veronal and anaholium. Oh, peyote. (laughs) Uh, Swallowed morphine tablets and shot heroin. He even considered syphilis a drug, beneficial for (laughs) inducing genius. It would be salutary. Every male be impregnated with the germs of this virus in order to facilitate the culture of individual genius. I think not. Since most of his experiences predate the English Dangerous Drug Act of 1921, Crowley had little trouble obtaining the drugs he used. He also had the advantage of private income. There's something ironic about the fact that the inheritance that allowed him to indulge in mind-altering substances also came from the family brewery business. But like we said before, Crowley's family actually abstained from drinking alcohol. They just brewed it to make that money. Anyway, lacking inhibitions, Crowley was the ideal prophet of enlightened drug use. The quality and quantity of Crowley's writings on these substances remained unsurpassed. He's possibly the most documented drug taker of all time, recording his experiences as a series of chemical love affairs. Hashish, you might say, went directly to his head. His essay, The Psychology of Hashish, is a study in cerebral overload. At one point, he unglues the word H-O-R-S-E and glues it backwards on his own synapse. I don't know, I've never done hashish, so that makes no sense to me. In Lieber Aleph, Crowley... Like some hashish huckster, pontificating in front of a metaphysical sideshow, honestly admires his inability to say anything at all on the subject. Oh, 
my son, yester eve came the spirit upon me, and I should eat the grass of Arabians. Now then, of this I may not speak, seeing that it involveth the mystery of transcending of time, so that in one hour of our terrestrial measure did I gather the harvest of an eon and ten lives I could not declare it. Yeah, that's great and all, but let's get back to the drugs. <laughs> Crowley was a tireless uh, propagandist of a, of a, a static drug-taking. His novels, plays, poems, paintings, acts of magical and mountaineering all revolve around drugs and were created on them uh, and probably in Crowley's imagination, manifestation of the gods. And they're even jealous. As they're even jealous, Crowley turned uh, on the great minds of his generation. Cole Porter to Coke, Cat kathleen mansfield to opium hg wells to Hashi i mean that actually kind of explains a lot if you think about war of the mm -hmm. worlds that guy was probably fucking high as balls <laughs> it was uh it was crowley who especially like when you read the uh when you hear the oh, original yeah. ra radio one and it's all <laughs> him performing it dude that guy was that guy was fucking lit when he did that mm -hmm. that's why he oh, thought yeah, it dude. was a good that's why he thought it was a good idea like Fuck giving the, the world panic. Watch this, guys. Mm -hmm. And he gets on the radio. <laughs> Man, it's at 10 o'clock in the afternoon, and the lights are going down. There's explosions in the streets. He's like, Jerry, quick, more. Oh, oh there's explosions <laughs> everywhere, guys. Yeah. That's how that shit happened. <laughs> Anyways, it was Crowley who first made a peyote in the form of liquid anoleum, popular in intellectual cir circles in Europe. His most important uh, convert was Adelis Huxley, who he introduced to peyote in a Ber Berlin hotel room. Mm. It was through peyote that Crowley came closest to the drug that his friend Alan Bennett had told him would open the gates of the world beyond the veil of matter. Crowley, anticipating the lysinergic mysticism of the 60s, by half a century wanted to use the effects of peyote and hashish to give proof of a new order of consciousness, sort of an acid test of mysticism. Lysergic acid was discovered only shortly before his death in 1947, though, and Crowley was never uh, to know about this ideal metaphysical instrument whose synthesis he had speculated on his essay on hashish. When he died at the age of 72 in complete possession of his considerable mental powers, Crowley had been consuming drugs continuously for 50 years. That was his favorite hobby, even beyond sex magic. Despite his battles with heroin, he never thought of drugs as other than highly beneficial substances. Intoxication, ecstasy, and ecstasy is the key to reality, he wrote. Drugs, according to the principles of Crowleyanity, merely permitted nature to manifest itself without impedance. For this reason, prohibitions of any kind were sheer folly. He said, how can you know what too much is unless you know what too much is? <laughs> he was fond of asking. As he pointed out in his multifiric autobiographical... <laughs> Jesus. Multifiric autobiography autobiography jesus man i feel like i'm on drugs autobiographical hallucinatory traveling diary of a drug fiend or europe on 10 grams a day the only reason for abstaining from anything is to enable one to get higher later on by recovering your drug virginity 
jugs were an essential ritual to the beast religion of Crowleyanity. But with the deadly insight of one who has often made himself a victim of his own rationalizations, Crowley knew too well the insidious collusion between ritual and habit. His mock catechism of indulgence, reasons for taking it, from the diary of a drug fiend is a wry catalog of human guile, resourcefulness, and self-delusion, and looking-glass logic. I'm worried about the drug because of not having any. If I were to take some, my mind would clear up immediately. And if I should be able to think out good plans for stopping it, I feel so very, very rotten, and a very, very little would make me feel so very, very good. We can't stop while we have it. The temptation is too strong. The best way is to finish it. We probably won't be able to get any more anyway, so we take it in order to stop taking it. Suppose I can take all these pains to stop drugs and then get cancer or something else right away. What a fool I shall feel. So he's kind of like a snake eating its own tail, really. Yeah. Although Crowley or, certainly... Or never... like Hunter S. Thompson before Hunter S. Thompson. I was going to say, man, he was definitely the drug guy up until Hunter S. Thompson, for sure. Yeah. Although Crowley certainly never needed an excuse to imbibe any mind-altering substance at hand, it's doubtful that even the Great Beast would have pursued drug-taking with such avidity if it had not meshed so neatly with his even greater obsession the practice of ritual magic. We all know Crowley was a ceremonial magician, like the famous magi of the past who were his teachers, Eliphaz, Levi, Caglistro, Cagliostro, and Abra Mellon. Crowley would perform carefully, prescribing rituals to enlist the aid of supernatural beings in such human endeavors as making money, attracting a lover, or finding a publisher. You know, that old trifecta. Unless, see here. Unlike his predecessors who believed that one should call down the spirits of the astral plane to communicate with the magician on Earth, Crowley held it so that it would be far better to visit the needed spirit on the spirit's own turf. This would avoid the hostility usually present in visiting spirits who had been dragged from their comfy astral niches to the whim of some earthbound magician. Thus, the crux of the magical ritual for Crowley was getting the magician literally high enough to penetrate the realm of the supernatural. Now, that does make sense to me, actually. Crowley reasoned that two human experiences, sexual orgasm and drug ecstasy, most closely approximated the type of transcendence necessary to gain access to the astral plane. The magician, he felt, should prepare his or her mind before entering the invocation by simply meditating upon the characteristics of the entity being contacted. The bond between invoker and the invoked might be strengthened by creating talismans or sigils with the astral being's name upon them, or by dressing in colors appropriate to the spirit. After heightening sensitivity with a careful chosen drug, the magician could begin the act of ritual intercourse, all while envisioning the invoked spirit. At the moment of orgasm, the magician should call out the spirit's name. Hopefully. Beals, Beals above. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm coming for you, buddy. Come on. Come on. Come here. Yeah. Oh, right there. Right there. Yeah, daddy. 
<laughs> At the moment of orgasm, the magician should call out the spirit's oh, oh, name. Beelzebub. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Add that to the list of things I never wanted to hear you say. Hopefully at that very instant, the magician and the spirit would merge entities and a clear understanding of the astral plane would be achieved. Come on, goat daddy, merge with me. (laughs) Stated this matter-of-factly, the magician operation does not suggest some of the problems inherent in trying to rub one's head and pat one's stomach at the same time. Uh, hmm, Interesting choice of words. (laughs) However, once the timing was mastered, here was the path to enlightenment, theoretically available to anybody with the courage and energy to attempt it. If nothing else, Crowley's theories certainly lightened the burdens of would-be magicians who for centuries had resigned themselves to such dismal tasks as saying mass backwards or locating suitable gallows near gloomy crossroads. Magic could now be fun. Crowley's myth that also... uh, relieve the magician of the nagging paranoia that perhaps the ritual wasn't performed exactly right. Let's see, was there three drops of frog's blood and two salamanders and some wart extra... Fuck. Anyways, using ecstasy as a (laughs) uh, criterion for success brings a wonderful uh, specificity Specificity, yeah. There you go, to magic workings. One knows precisely when the climax occurs. I bet you do. Seen in uh, another light, the secrets of Crowley's magic lay in the charming paradox familiar to drug users everywhere. That is, when one is getting off, one is really getting on to something. Similarly, for sexual experimenters, if one comes, then one has arrived. Since Crowley believed that the only proof for magic was its success, he kept a very thorough diary in which he noted every magical experiment and its outcome. Even the most casual reader of the diaries will notice that Crowley was rarely at a loss for sexual partners or psychedelic drugs. He was a real Lao Tzu kind of guy, you know, you can't have light without dark and you can't have empty without full. I like that about this guy. Whether the former good fortune stemmed from his sex appeal ointment called Ruthva, the perfumes of immortality, one part ambergris, two parts musk, three parts civet, or from his sheer audacity because he was known to go up to strange women at parties and bite them on the lip until he drew blood and endearment he termed the serpent's kiss, we may never be certain. But certainly the reader will mourn the passing of the helpful American pharmacist, which Crowley describes during his drug trip across the USA in the year of 1919. My first stop was Detroit, where Park Davis were charming and showed me over to their wonderful chemical works. They had installed countless and ingenious devices for conducting the process involved in manufacturing by machinery. Many of these produced effects of exquisite beauty, and a land till then dreamed of in my philosophy. A great mass of pills and highly polished and rapidly evolving receiver was indefinitely fascinating to watch. The spheres tumbled over each other with rhythmical rise and fall and rhythm which sang to the soul. They were kind enough to interest themselves in my researches in peyote, 
and made me some special preparations on the lines indicated by my experience, which proved greatly superior to previous preparations. Perhaps the most interesting implication of Crowley's practice of sexual magic is magic's ability to transform even the most casual sexual encounter into an opportunity for spiritual and mental gain or to hear Preston scream, oh, 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 Baphomet. Oh, oh, Baphomet. <laughs> Crowley claimed... I'm, I'm coming, baby. Crowley claimed to enjoy sex for its own sake very rarely, much preferring to use the orgasm as a springboard into the astral plane. The ironically pompous tone the beast adopted when discussing sex, however, was often a huge joke. When he announced with religious solemnity that he had been attending his own devotions, he might as well mean that he had been practicing his favorite perversion, pervas nefandum, heterosexual sodomy, with a particularly ugly sex worker, we'll call it. If one were to single out any one period in the beast's magic-filled life as being most fantastic, though, most legend-making, surely it must be the rip-roaring days of April 2nd, 1920 through May 1st, 1923. Crowley had long wished to be found a center for his ongoing work, a sort of pagan retreat house where followers could stay for extended periods of time and study the doctrine of do what thou shall to be the whole law. On a fateful April day, Crowley and his two current concubines moved into a rustic farmhouse in Cephalu, Cephalu, Sicily, which became, by virtue of the magic power of names, the infamous Abbey of Thelema. Crowley's original plans for the Abbey looked... Dude, I don't even want to fucking hear it because you can even pronounce Quetzalcoatl, whatever it was. I don't think know. that was Quetzalcoatl. Whatever. Sifulu. Here we go. <laughs> I nailed it. Oh, 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 Baphomet. <laughs> oh, Baphomet. Anyways, uh, his original plans looked good on paper. Followers at the Abbey would rise at a given hour, perform their morning and evening rituals together, dine as a community, and spend their days perfecting their magical techniques under Crowley's enlightened guidance. Any survivor of the communes of the psychedelic 60s may well guess what just went wrong. Crowley's notion of home decorations were eccentric but harmless enough. He spent long hours blissfully painting wall murals, the purpose of which he claimed was to make sex so familiar that the devotees would become indifferent to it. How indifferent one might become to a super graphic of a naked man being sodomized by a pan under the approving uh, <laughs> gaze of the whore of the stars is a moot point. Yep, I was going to say, we barely grazed upon the uh, Abbey of Thelema back when we talked about this. We really just kind of focused on the whole painting of Pan banging some dude. But yeah, here we are. Believing that one should explore one's own sexuality, personality to the fullest, during his days at the Abbey, Crowley dubbed his female persona Alice Cusick. Over his bed, she or he hung a sign that read, Alice Cusick is Ought at home to indicate his mag magico-sexual learnings for the night. Crowley would fill in the blank with an N or an H. Okay, so Alice Cusick is not at home or hot at home. Unfortunately, other members of the Abbey didn't possess Crowley's degree of sexual sophistication and playfulness. 
Among the household demons lurked the green-eyed monster. And as early as April 20th, Crowley records in his diaries a jealous scene between the two concubines that ended with one lady outside banging at the moon and the other inside vomiting and throwing a fit. The usual panache, a few puffs of opium, provided an uneasy peace. Still in all, the Abbey might have succeeded far better and longer than it did if only it could have remained unobserved by the unsympathetic, magic-fearing outside world. The ever-explosive combination of drugs and sex kept detonating into mushroom clouds of gossip, and one female visitor reported, Upon arrival, Crowley offered her a goat turd on a plate. These Crowley pretentiously called his cakes of light. There were enough genuinely bizarre happenings at the Abbey to lend substance to the most far-fetched rumor the writer Mary Butts reported a devotion involving the Whore of Babylon copulating with a he-goat, whose throat the beast was to slit at the moment of climax. This whole thing was supposed to be the case of them having sex with the goat. But if you guys remember right, we said they couldn't quite get the goat to get it up, and so sadly it was just them naked running around trying to rub on this goat. Finally, they kind of got it slightly excited. Crowley got confused, went to slit the neck, but only stabbed it in the throat, not killing it, but just pissing it off. So it ran and ran and ran around the house, just bleeding everywhere. Then, drenched in the animal's blood, the priestess pathetically asked, What should I do now? And while Mary Butts was visiting, watching the entire thing, she just said, I'd have a bath if I were you, thus making that entire ritual a giant laughingstock. The journalist of the London periodical, The Sunday Express, who had long found Crowley the hottest news item since Jack the Ripper, were far more malicious. Although they uh, maintained that the facts are too utterly filthy to be detailed in a newspaper, they did manage to report that children under 10, whom the beast keeps at the Abbey, are made to witness horrible sexual deb debauches, unbelievably revolting. Filthy incense is burned and cakes of goat blood and honey are consumed in the windowless room where the beast conducts his rites. The rest of the time he lies in a room hung with obscene pictures, collected all over the world, saturating himself with drugs. In 1923, Crowley and his remaining disciples, victims of Italy's fascism and British yellow journalism, were expelled from Sicily. Yeah, rumors got around that he was making bread out of uh, goat turds, period blood, and shit and honey, and all of a sudden he was on the radar. <laughs> a riddle to his biographers, an enigma to astrologers, the great beast, a.k.a. Prince Chihuacan, a.k.a. Laird of Bolskin, a.k.a. Fahi, God of Laughter, a.k.a. Professor Qua, Sexologist, a.k.a. Alistair the Destroyer, Wanderer in the Waste, a.k.a. Paramanza the Divine Swan, a.k.a. Count Vladimir Swarev, a.k.a. Baphomet, Holy King of Ireland and Iona, persona of no fixed abode, was at the loss to what Crowley had put on next, which Crowley was left, in fact, to wear out. He wrote like some earthbound Buddha, weary of reincarnating. I have died already often enough, died to calf love, to stamp collecting, card playing, 
first edition hoarding, society fluttering, chess excelling, tiger hunting, salmon fishing, golf loading, women bagging, rock scrambling, ice maze threading, sightseeing, power grasping, I have tried the hashish life, the opium life, the alcohol life, the ether life, the heroin life. None of them has interfered with any other of the lives. This Alistair Crowley, he explained, was characteristic megalomania in the preface to his autobiography, was not a man or even a number of men. He is obviously a solar myth. His name is associated with fables not less fantastic than those which have thrown doubt upon the histocracy uh, of the Buddha. Somehow he managed to keep the kaleidoscope pieces of himself together until that fateful day in May of 1921 when he ceased to be Aleister Crowley and became God. Huh. Well, he recorded the event with cosmic uh, resonation in his magical diary, 9.34 uh, p.m. As God goes, I go. Huh. Since his death in 1947, the great beast has slept a troubled sleep. The unsung hero of hippies, he was called by the International Times, London's underground newspaper. And yet he remains an obscure cult figure to a generation who were his natural offspring. He somehow lacked the necessary pieties. Nevertheless, though, that fiendish presence has impishly insinuated itself into the films of Kenneth Anger on the cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band, appropriately between Mae West and an unidentified Indian holy man, Jimmy Page has moved into his old manor, Bolskin House, which doubles as a museum of the Lemic memorabilia. First editions of his book have become prize collector's items, and an English occult magazine sought this. And in a recent issue published a Crowley-esque ritual involving the god Anubis, sexual magic, and LSD. Now, we got to remember here, that's a little uh, little teaser into our next episode. Jimmy Page is said to have moved into the old Bolskin house, a.k.a. the place where the Loch Ness Monster may have been summoned. But what can be said conclusively about the man who claims to have turned his friend Victor Nuremberg into a camel, who predicted World War II, who stopped gramophones in German railway stations, who dematerialized himself wearing a jeweled crown and sacred cloak at midday in Mexico City, who smashed the crockery of his own sworn enemy, the Hierophant McGregor Mathers by telekinesis, the guy who seduced heiresses in pastry shop windows through hypnosis, the guy who made love on astral planes and lowered the bank rate by 3% back in 1913 by magic, and who could say it better than the Ostroglobulus <laughs> Crowley himself? I am the beast. I am the world of Aeon. I spend my soul in blazing torrents that roar into the night, streams that with molten tongues hiss as they lick. I am a hell of a holy guru. Yeah. Now there the tale go. is finished by saying that uh, Crowley died in a hospital bed, but not by himself. See, even in his final days, he was still really rip-roaring for a little shoot-up of heroin. So, off the books... It's said that his doctor actually continued to supply him with heroin so he can continue to get high while he was hospitalized because Crowley thought he was getting out. He didn't think it was quite the end. And at one point, the doctor's like, look, dude, you're not doing very well. 
I think your days might be numbered. I'm going to cut you back off this heroin because this shit's not helping. Well, apparently Crowley put a curse on the old doctor and said, if you ever cut out my supply of heroin, then the day I die, you shall die too. Anyway, the doctor is said to cut off the heroin supply. Crowley goes on to die of quote-unquote natural causes. But oddly enough, wouldn't you know it, his doctor then fell dead later that same day. So it's unsaid if Crowley really put a curse on the doctor or if it was just sheer coincidence, but I kind of like to think that old Crowley just cast one more little ounce of magic before he finally just uh, kicked the shit bucket. Yeah, wow. Hmm. Well, I think that's a pretty pleasant ending, buddy. Uh, lo and behold, that article is a nice little, uh, little door jam to finish things off. What do you think? Yeah, fuck it. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Works for me. All righty, guys. So our next episode, we're going to kind of get away from Crowley just a little bit. He'll still be hanging out in the wings. And we're going to talk a lot about the influence that Crowley had on modern pop music with uh, Led Zeppelin, with the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, lots of other people as well, and get into kind of some nitty-gritty with uh, music and the occult. So hope you guys join us next time. Um, next time will probably be a little bit longer because I know our last episode is... About a half hour, and this guy will uh, be here uh, just under 45 minutes. So we'll make it up to you guys and do a long one next time. But as always, we want to thank everybody for joining us. Lazarus and Fire Pixie, thanks for jumping on, y'all. We sure appreciate you guys. Preston, um, since we're talking about YouTube, let's go out of order. How are we doing? Uh, we're at 267 subscribers, uh, so we gain, we lost one and we gained one back. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, somebody's count got banned or, um, you know, they did something naughty and YouTube kicked them off and we lost one, but then we gained one. So we're right back where we're at. So if you <laughs> like the content, if uh, you like what you're hearing, you like seeing our faces, uh, follow the directions on the bottom right side of the screen. Like, subscribe and share with all your friends so we can. There grow. you go. And on the other social medias, please, if you're on Facebook, we are the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. If you're on Instagram, we are at PXLParanormal. We have a Twitter, but I mean, who uses that anymore? So who knows? Maybe a TikTok or we might just kind of just keep things where they're at. We don't know. But please give us a like and a follow on all of those. If you're using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. We'll read your rating on an upcoming episode. If you're on Spotify, please drop some of those stars, man. Uh, we're still a five-star podcast on both uh, Apple and Spotify, so that's pretty rad. Yeah. What do you got on Big and Dobbs, buddy boy? Look, need a beard, want a beard. If you want to be growing, coming, and going, well, you're going to need a little Dobbs <laughs> oh, in your Baphomet. face. Yeah, or there ain't going to be no O Baphomet, nothing. So do yourself a <laughs> favor and go over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order and pick yourself up some scents like Bay Rum Fresh, Citrus, Mint, Classic, and Sweet Tobacco. If I were a half goat god with uh, you know human titties hanging out, uh, I, I would probably go with the Sweet Tobacco because... Uh, most of the deities like a uh, little tobacco going their way. So get it all. <laughs> get it to Dobbs. That's true, man. Did you drop the promo code? I kind of missed that part. P X P X P X L A A. Fuck. You know, I do. I know it when I when I had to do the spiel. But then he asked me. Okay. I'm sorry, buddy. Yeah. I said it, but then you derailed me. Okay. You I didn't it. hear you, you say it. 
you be the adult. P X L P A. Yeah. P X L P A R A. A R A. There you go. Oh, I love you more and more every day, buddy. Yeah. If you're in the Wichita area, also please stop by, see our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang at CD Trade Post Pawnee and Seneca. And if you're hungry, especially on the weekends, uh, if you're in the Wichita area, stop by and see our friends, the Paranormal Experience Food Truck. Or if you want to go to a brick and mortar, they've got a pretty awesome place called the Paranormal.cafe that is also open throughout the week. Okay, folks, until next time, I'm raising this glass of the pie, uh, pineapple banana Moscow mule and saying cheers to the weird shit in the world and the rest of us. I'd love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast that pixelated paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.